Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. One of the components to the proper delivery of healthcare services is practice management. Many physicians and administrators struggle with balancing the business requirements for delivering quality care to patients. My guest has decades of experience in helping health systems and practice leaders navigate the shoals endemic to management. Dr. Michael Spellman has a seasoned and uncommon perspective. Prepare to be moved up the learning curve by his vast experience. Let's begin. My guest today is Michael Spellman. Dr. Spellman is a licensed psychologist. He has served as chief of staff for several Southwestern Florida hospitals. Dr. Spellman is the author of the recently released Lucrative Practices, the Comprehensive Handbook for Healthcare Executives. It is published by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Michael Spellman, welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, it's my pleasure to be speaking with you today, uh, Dr. Spellman. Let's talk a little bit about your book, Lucrative Practices. It's certainly comprehensive. What inspired you to write a book that covers so much waterfront? There were a lot of things that kind of came together. I've always wanted to write a book of that ilk, uh, not necessarily that comprehensive, but you know, physicians, as you know, are very well trained in medicine and uh, tend to be minimally trained in business. And I wanted something in the hands of, of private practice folks in particular, but also physicians working in facilities and managerial kind with managerial responsibilities to have a broader base from which to make their decisions and guide their careers. Now, that was a large part of it. Uh, I've been a practice consultant for 30 odd years, and I just had this whole collection of, of questions that people have asked over the years and uh, problems that people have brought to me that are consistent, redundant problems across practices, as well as successes, by the way, that people have also taught me what works. So I've had a whole collection of those, and I thought it would be worth putting those into some usable form for, for those who are trying to uh, make a living in healthcare. And finally, the timing was right. Uh, the world is changing. The healthcare marketplace is no longer uh, what it was certainly back when I was a boy. Uh, the rewards are not commensurate with training. The pressures from third and fourth and sometimes fifth parties is phenomenal. The, the, whole, the whole game has been changed pretty profoundly. And it's important for people to A, know from whence we come, B, have at least the best predictions as to where we're going. So I added sections on that as well. Interesting. It occurs to me that it is not a logical um, or at least obvious uh, progression from psychologists to studying the business of, of medicine. How did you become this deeply involved in the business of medicine? I, I have a favorite saying that, that every misfortune has the potential to turn out very fortunately. And I had a bunch of, uh, quote, misfortunes early in my career, the first of which was I was among the first uh, group of, of interns admitted uh, uh, from psychology to internships at Parkland uh, in Dallas as part of Southwestern Medical School's uh, effort to integrate behavioral health. So I started my career very early on in medical settings. I went from there into a position that 
was not intended to be a, a, a C-suite level administrative position, but for reasons I won't bore you with, ended up turning into a C-suite uh, position. So I ended up helping to build a hospital and then manage that hospital for some time thereafter. So very, very early in my career, I got embedded in the medical community, probably a bit more deeply than the psychology community, uh, got embedded in uh, healthcare management far more deeply than I ever imagined uh, during my training years. Ever since then, as I said, I've been a practice consultant. Uh, I've consulted to everything from solo practitioners all the way to major multinational hospital holding corporations. So I've kind of got the breadth, uh, the psychology part uh, has mostly to do with I bring a psychologist's perspective. So I've got the businessman's kind of point of view, but I'm always taking into account the psychologist's point of view. You know, you can come up with a really good policy, a real good system, a real good procedure, a real good training module, a real good whatever. But if you don't have the human factors in there, you're not going to get the gains that you potentially could. So your book, Lucrative Practices, is organized in what I found to be an, an interesting format. You look at relationships, relationships to patients, relationships to insurers, and, and so forth. Um, I wouldn't think that that's a standard or traditional mode of, of organizing a comprehensive um, text on the on the topic. How did you come about going with uh, the relationship as the foundation? Certainly. Uh, again, the start, the starting part of my answer to that would be the psychologist's bias. Psychologists uh, obviously do take a look at, at uh, how both individuals and couples and organizations relate uh, to the world around them and, and to others. Uh, but looking beyond that, that, that uh, initial bias, uh, when I tried to factor analyze, not statistically, but in my head, what kind of common factors there were in the problems that people were bringing to me. Very often the solutions and most often the successful solutions did involve some attention to the relationships. Partnerships, for example. Uh, I, I know a number of examples just in recent years pre-COVID uh, where folks who were struggling could have, if they had thought about how they were relating to others in their specialty and their community, could have uh, built either partnerships or joint ventures or other relationship-based interactions that would have taken them out of either holes or put them in a position where they were, uh, were being more lucrative in their earnings. Uh, so relationships have always uh, been a part of my thinking before I make recommendations to folks. And it just made sense because the problems factored out that way to do it that way. That's part of the reason. The other part is, uh, and it's probably especially salient right now to, to look at personnel relations. You know, every industry is having their problems with personnel. Some of that has to do with factors that I think were in the control of the employers, myself included, by the way. You know, and when uh, COVID absolutely did change people's perspectives, we have the great resignation going on. But I think if we had uh, uh, handled our relationships with our employees a bit differently on the front end, we wouldn't see such a drain of uh, talented folks leaving the workplace, including the private practice uh, part of the workplace. Let's look a little bit more into that or, or, or talk a little bit more about that, Dr. Spellman, because I, I am interested in uh, this, this drain or people resigning. Um, can you give our audience some, some suggestions 
uh, or deeper explanation as to why this, why we're facing this current situation? Certainly, uh, the folks I've been talking to, and this is this is uh, not science here. This is simply uh, the, the word, the subjective take on on the words I've heard. Uh, when I talk to folks who have left their their uh, their jobs. Uh, some of them are for economic reasons, some of them are for a number of reasons other than burnout, but a lot of them are burnout. Mm. I talk to uh, employers, you know, they're burned out too. So what you have are the people who are supposed to be providing the wind under my wings, so to speak, trying to flap their own wings so hard to get through the 2020 uh, that they weren't adequately attending to the needs of their employees, one. And two, no way to predict it. You know, who knew that we'd be uh, sequestered for as long as we were, that we'd be under the, the threat of uh, becoming infected ourselves for as long as we were, we'd handle the financial woes that came with COVID, et cetera, and the losses, et cetera. So, you know, no finger wagging to be had here, but uh, listening to people tells me for sure that uh, we could have been more supportive. We could have, would have, should have overcome, and this one I, I have a strongly held belief in, uh, when we sent people home, we should have had some way to bring them together, even if it was just electronically on a very regular basis with less of an emphasis on this is a one hour Zoom call, let's get through it uh, and accomplish the business we need to accomplish and more of a what church folks would call fellowship, but uh, you know, business folks would call uh, team building, you know, but things that, that compensated for the distance. Have you seen effective team building done remotely? Absolutely. Because it seems to me it's a very difficult thing to do, or at least a different animal when we look at each other through uh, camera lenses as opposed to across the room. Certainly. There's no doubt. I mean, tons of research, in fact, to support the notion that it may be the next best thing to be in there, but it ain't the same as being there. With that said, your, your opening question is, can it be effective? And the answer to that is a, a resounding yes. And I'll step out of healthcare to make the example, but I can give you uh, examples from uh, HCA, for example, any of the larger uh, universal, any of the larger hospital uh, chains, you know, their CEOs have holdings around the world. Guess what? They don't fly around the world every day to, to, to team build. They get on uh, weekly chats with, the, with their, uh, their staff around the world and they do do the, the team building things. So yes, there are some methods and techniques that you can do it, but you know, think about uh, what happens with uh, uh, outside of our industry, what happens when uh, a CEO puts out a challenge to different plants, different manufacturing plants and sets it up in a motivating kind of way, in a driving kind of way, in a way that uh, compels the teamwork. It's, it's very, it can be very effective. And team, team, building, team building, I think, has a bad rep. Uh, I, I know when I, when I have folks call me and ask me to come in and do team building, the, the, listening to their opening questions is all, often an implication that they're expecting some kind of kumbaya moment. <laughs> and certainly, you know, there, there's room for that. There's place for that. But that's not the only technique. And, you know, team building takes a lot of different forms. In your book where you're using different types of relationships, are there certain relationships that you find uh, are disproportionately more problematic 
for healthcare providers? Yes. Uh, so one of the chapters is titled Relationships with Insurers or words to that effect. Uh, if you think about it, it's a love-hate relationship. Most, most uh, healthcare providers would rather simply have a one-to-one -one relationship with their, with their patients and uh, no other interfering factors to, to have to contend with. But in fact, most, most patients are insured unless you're in the fortunate position of a uh, fee-for-service practice, you're gonna have to just deal with that triangulated relationship. Well, as soon as a relationship is triangular, you got a problem. I'll tell you that with great confidence as a psychologist. Uh, triangles just don't work so well in our species. So yeah, I would I would put relationships with insurers as among the most challenging. Making it all the more so is we're in the same industry. We're all in that umbrella of healthcare, but boy, are our our drives and our motivations and the and the operating forces different. So for example, if I have uh, a relationship with an insurance company and a contractual obligation, for example, to a managed care entity to stay within certain parameters, but I have another contract and obligation to my patient, then I've got, I've got a major relationship problem and I've got to decide where my allegiances are and I've got to make decisions that I'm sure are uh, compliant with my obligations and uh, both clinically and ethically correct. So I find those the most challenging. You mentioned that the physician or healthcare system relationship with uh, third-party payers or insurers is a, a love-hate. It, it occurs to me that it's much more hate than love, um, <laughs> but I, I don't know if your experience has been that. Well, I think that's part of what I address in the book. Uh, you know, you, you're basically competing for portions of the healthcare dollar. And if you, if you really want to break it down to its barest, barest bones, there's a hundred bucks on the table and how much of that's going to go into the doctor's pocket and how much of that's going to stay in the patient's pocket and how much of that's going to go to, to uh, the insurer or the third party payer. Uh, so to that extent, it's, it's a competition and it's not always a friendly competition because as much as we say we're in the same industry, we're not. They're, they're in the financial sector, we're in the healthcare sector. Uh, so yet you, you have that dynamic to deal with. If you take that into account and don't turn that into a fight, you turn it into as much of a collaboration as you can, then at least you're listening to the other guy's perspective and you're building your practice from that perspective or at least with that perspective taken into account. How does that work? You don't uh, have to worry about, are you coding correctly? Truly do stick to whatever the uh, insurer's parameters are. But I have quite a few clients who turn that into a, a bit of extra profit because they will turn to their patients and say, this is what your insurance will pay for. This is what I'm recommending. How do you want to handle it? You know, there, are, there are solutions to it. What happens is we get uh, too often, in my opinion, we get into the struggle over it. We get into the righteousness of it. And we end up in a tug of war that uh, is destined to go nowhere. I'd like to take a step back and just look at the title of, of your, your book, um, because it, it's a comprehensive handbook for healthcare executives, which seems to me to show that it's intended for both executors, executives and, and managers. Um, mm -hmm. wh why, why both? It had, in part because of the shape of the industry at this point in time, you know, 
for all my life, uh, this limited discussion for a moment is just small private practices or medium-sized practices, independent practices. You know, the physicians don't have time to be out there doing the day-to-day -day ops. They don't have the time to be doing the day-to-day -day financial stuff. Somebody else is doing most of that for them. And they're, to the extent that they can find 10 free minutes, the CEO. With that said, you want your managers and your CEO to be lined up. So at the individual practice level, that's kind of always made sense to, to address both audiences. Uh, in today's world where so many practices and so many physicians are employed uh, within larger systems, you're, you're having uh, doctors with usually heavier workloads than, than used to be the case, uh, clinical workloads and administrative responsibilities. And they're therefore having to delegate more and more. They're having to uh, know more and more because you can't oversee something if you don't understand it to begin with. And if you have only a minimal understanding, for example, of how to audit for losses, well, you know, you'll, yes, you'll catch some things, but your net's just not uh, tight enough to catch the things you need to catch. Well, well said. Dr. Spelman, what does the future hold for healthcare executives and managers? I think, I wish I could give you a one-line answer to that one. I think it's, it's going to be a multifactorial, multi-pathed kind of thing. I think there's going to be quite a few uh, healthcare executives who are actually going to prosper in the coming years to a greater extent than they have in past years. I think the opportunities are changing. We're certainly seeing uh, uh, far more activity from the retail sector entering into healthcare the insurance industry uh, entering into direct care. Telehealth is certainly a game changer to some extent. There's a, just a bunch of, of largely, you know, large cap enterprises entering the healthcare industry. And that should create opportunities for talented managers who are willing to make the shift, who are able to, to see the future and adjust course accordingly. On the other side of that same coin, there are those of us who are going to want to kind of stay in the model we you know, started our careers in, and we're going to have to reshape. We're going to have to find ways to uh, handle, uh, you know, the example I use is a mental health example, you know, handle Michael Phelps being on the, the TV news advertisements three times in the course of a half an hour and you being ethically forbidden from advertising. You know, there's, uh, there's going to be challenges for managers and uh, those who are willing and able to take the time and effort to learn how to overcome those obstacles, to learn, you know, MBA level management skills uh, and take the time away from clinical work to actually implement what they've learned or hire consultants uh, to do it for them, uh, likely will continue to prosper. Those who don't, I uh, do believe that, that that's going to be an ever dwindling cadre of folks. I think you're right mentioned some some areas of potential su success or opportunities and in certainly uh, some that may be of, uh, of failures. What are some of the more common areas learned from the success and failures of others to avoid costly mistakes and make more profitable decisions? Do your homework is the is the first first and foremost. I mean, uh, 
I'm amazed how you know the, the folks I get to work with are invariably exceptionally uh, intelligent, exceptionally well motivated, exceptionally exceptional uh, folks who get an idea and look at the surface of it and pull triggers. And so, uh, rule number one: do your homework. I do understand time is in short supply and the knowledge of how to do the homework, where to find the data you need to make an informed decision and make a predictive decision. Uh, uh, it's hard to come by, uh, but that is why they have consultants. That's why they have attorneys, lawyers, folks like me who consult on the business and uh, don't be shy about using them. If, if you're looking to build wealth, if you're built, looking to make your practice more lucrative, then you have to invest some to, to you, you got you got to sow some seed to reap some to reap some plants. Uh, so that, that one's loud and clear. The another, uh, not quite universal, but pretty widespread error is to not look at what opportunities you're letting pass. The world changes and the healthcare industry changes on a very rapid pace. It's, you know, we get lost on things like MACRA and MIPS and whatever the, the, the acronym du jour is. And we get so bogged down in trying to keep up with those things that we're not looking at other factors. You know, I, I think I just brought up one of the bigger ones. There's going to be new competitors in the in the field that weren't there a few years ago. Uh, if you're not looking at that, you're going to sink. You're going to uh, at least get um, water sloshed on your boat by the wake of the bigger guys. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, the book is. Lucrative Practices, the Comprehensive Handbook for Healthcare Executives. My guest has been Dr. Michael Spellman. Dr. Spellman, thank you so much for taking time to be on Sound Practice. Thank you for having me. Take care. My thanks to Dr. Michael Spellman for his time and insights. His book is Lucrative Practices, the Comprehensive Handbook for Healthcare Executives. A link to this book may be found in the show notes to this episode. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Pseudo had his holy cow, that man Robin. <laughs>